0: Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blood of
1: wicked proportions.
0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast for Friday, January 12th, 2018. This would be Season 2, Episode 9. I guess we could call this the Welcome to 2018 edition of the Bobcast, or maybe the Post World Junior Championship edition. In any case, Happy New Year, everyone. I hope uh, the 2018, what we've had of it for 12 days, has uh, has been good to you and your family. So have you have you broken any resolutions yet? I guess I'm like a lot of people I'm I'm trying and I emphasis on the word trying to get my shit together at the start of a new year just be a little healthier to be a little more active uh or to uh, I guess borrow a phrase from my old TSN panel mate Peter Laviolette uh, now of course the head coach of the Nashville Predators I think it's time to take a trip to dry island yep no alcohol for me for the rest of January and February now I'm going to tell you there's something wrong with this picture because James Duthie today was Instagramming ocean and pool shots from the beautiful Gansevoort villas in Turks and Caicos, and I'm headed off to Dry Island. Of course, I know if you heard James at the the World Junior Championship and the fact he lost his voice and wasn't feeling particularly well, couldn't do the bronze medal game, had to bring Tessa Bonham out of the bullpen to host for the bronze medal game, because Jimmy needed to rest up for the gold medal game, and his voice might have, might have only made it through one game that day. I guess if you heard him, you would say that he needed a vacation. I, I personally think that maybe we should have just taken him out back at the KeyBank Center and shot him. Now, I haven't gotten sick yet, at least not full-fledged sick. You know, you know that feeling when you're kind of right on the edge where you think you could go either way? It's been close a couple of times. And the fact I haven't got sick is an absolute miracle. Because immediately before Christmas, while we were taping the World Junior Championship Preview Show on Christmas Eve morning, the quiz master was hacking and spewing like you cannot believe. Now, the quiz master is an interesting guy. He says, he claims he never gets sick. When in reality, at least three times a year, he gets really sick. Coughing, loses his voice, sniffing, snorting, all that stuff. But the reality is, He doesn't ever take a day off work. So because he doesn't take a day off work, he says he's never been sick. So Quizmaster was sick and he was hacking and coughing all over the place. Then Puffy, our boy Puff, um, the star of the Rubber Boots podcast um, and James Duffy's handler. Well, he got sick too, right before Christmas and right around Christmas. So he also was very um, vociferous in his sickness and uh, was through much of the World Junior uh, with us on set. And our floor director, lovely lady in Buffalo, um, if she didn't have bronchitis, I don't know what it was, but it, it didn't sound good. And while we were in Buffalo, we are right on the concourse, um, second level, and our set's right there and so people would stop by lots of fans and we got lots and lots of pictures taken we met a lot of people which is all cool shook a lot of hands Um, I would say kissed a lot of babies but didn't kiss any babies just shook a lot of hands literally hundreds over the course of the tournament now I try not to be a germaphobe I really I really try hard not to be too hung up on that kind of stuff but when you've got the quizmaster and you've got puffy and you've got james and you've got the floor director and they're all <laughs> all the way through the whole world junior championship and then you're shaking hands with hundreds of strangers and, and and as i say i really like the handshake it's a great way to greet somebody i think it's awesome but and, and this is the part where i'm starting to become a little more of a germaphobe I'm thinking to myself, if I'm shaking hands with, let's just say 100 people, if I shake hands with 100 people, I'm thinking a handful of them are probably sick. And at least one of them probably picked his nose before he shook my hand. And and I'm guessing that there's even a chance one dirty dog might have scratched his ass before shaking my hand. And, I, and, and I'm starting to think of that when I'm shaking people's hands. And some people have a real good handshake, firm, obviously, that's what you want, but you want the cold and dry hand. You don't want the warm and sweaty hand. And and there were some warm and sweaty hands and it wasn't good. And as I say, I love to meet people, happy to get pictures taken, but I do not want to get sick. And um, I spent much of the World Junior Championship applying hand sanitizer like it was my job. Anyway, um, back to dry island. As much as I like to, to talk about booze, especially wine, or in the summer, frozen margaritas, I really don't feel like I drink that much. Um, I definitely don't feel like I have a problem. Although everybody who has a problem um, says they don't have a problem. (laughs) But in any case, um, this for me is a little more about discipline, control, sending a message to myself that I'm in control and um, I'm not going to, you know, for a prescribed period of time, I'm not going to do this. And in this case, it's drink alcohol. Now, there's also a reality here. You start out the new year and like everybody else. You're trying to eat better. You're trying to drop a few pounds. um, And if you're like me, a few should be 20 or 30. um, Cutting out alcohol is a good first step to... uh, to kind of getting on the road to to in a few pounds and being a little healthier, being a little more active doesn't hurt either. Um, but at the end of the day, like everything else, it's all about moderation. And uh, at some point, uh, in uh, hopefully, hey, listen, I'll, I'll make you a deal. Um, as we do the bobcast, I can keep you up to date on how Dry Island is going, and if there's been any lapses. Um, although a lapse usually means that's the end of Dry Island, you're off. But uh, nevertheless. Um, it's it's all about just trying to get some moderation. And uh, that's what I'm going to do. And it's easier said than done in this job and crazy hours and travel and unpredictability. And hey, just because I'm not drinking any alcohol for the rest of January and all of February doesn't mean we can't still talk about it if we need to. So if you have any wine recommendations or questions about wine or you, you want to uh, revisit uh, the margarita recipe for the summer, I'm I'm fine with that. Um, Before we get to um, hockey stuff, there's a number of other matters that need to be taken care of. Uh, First and foremost, a a quick shout out to my very good friend, Pierre Maguire. Pierre, of course, is the uh, color commentator on NBC hockey down there between the glass. And anybody who knows anything about um, TSN history knows that Pierre and I worked together for many years at TSN before Pierre went to NBC So, Gord Miller, myself, and Pierre spent a lot of time together, and we became great friends. And as you may or may not have heard, um, Pierre was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, In early January, he had surgery to remove his prostate, and he's doing tremendously well right now. His prognosis is very good. He's still on the radio pretty much every day. In fact, uh, uh, just before we started taping this edition of the Bobcast, I heard his... uh, his uh his voice on uh, Leafs lunch so um he's uh, he's doing great and uh, he's not doing any games for NBC between now and the Olympics but he is scheduled to be in South Korea in February for the Olympics so all the best to my pal Pierre and his his wonderful family I'm I'm uh, hopeful and optimistic that things will work out well for him also um, congratulations to uh, my pals uh, and I guess uh, so called competition. Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick on the launch of their 31 Thoughts uh, new podcast. The more the merrier on the hockey podcast front, I say. So good luck to Elliot and Jeffy, as Bill Bill Waters used to call Jeff Merrick during their old days back on, <coughs> excuse me, 640 radio in Toronto. Oh, hold on a second. Here. I might have a cough and a little drink of water. There we go. I'm not getting sick. I'm not getting sick. I'm not getting sick. Okay. Uh we'll get to world uh we'll get to some hockey and uh a world junior follow-up in a moment, but um I, I should give you the quick Netflix update since um we talked a lot about that before uh Christmas and at the uh the year end edition. So since we last spoke before Christmas, I can tell you that I have mowed through some absolutely first rate shows. First and foremost, season four of Peaky Blinders was absolutely fantastic. If you follow the Bobcast at all, you know that I've recommended, highly recommended Peaky Blinders. I'm very proud of the fact that I got Ray Ferraro, amongst many others, started on Peaky Blinders. And uh, Season 4 came out just before Christmas. uh, Mowed it down. It's a fantastic show. If you haven't checked it out, do so. The Shelbys of Birmingham. Is really terrific stuff. I should also point out that my lovely wife Cindy and I also zipped through the most recent season of The Crown uh, that got uh, released before Christmas. We really enjoyed that too. And um, for a real change of pace and uh, taking a, a break from the Brit, so to speak, while I was in Buffalo for the World Juniors, um, I watched the one and only season. Of Godless. I believe it's seven episodes. Yeah, seven episodes, and this is a terrific Western. Um, Michelle Dockery from Downton Abbey uh, was very good in it. Uh, Jack O'Connell plays uh, Roy Good, and uh, Jeff Daniels was fantastic as a, a villainous Frank Griffin, who uh, this role for Jeff Daniels was a real departure from Dumb and Dumber in, in the newsroom. So I uh, highly recommend uh, Godless on Netflix. Um, Anybody who follows the Bobcast also knows that in the past I've mentioned uh, Dave Chappelle stand-up specials. There were a couple of them that came out in the last year, and uh, I uh, I highly touted those in previous editions of the Bobcast. And I am something of an amateur when it comes to uh, evaluating stand-up comedy, but I, I've seen enough stand-up specials and and comics to know that this guy, this Chappelle guy, I mean, he takes it to a whole other level. And um, he's got a brand new special out. Uh, I think it's pronounced Equanimity. Um, it's so good. So um, if you get a chance on Netflix to grab any of those Chappelle specials, um, get right to it. It's, it's really good. I can tell you that right at this moment, um, I'm plowing through Fauda, which was recommended to me by a Bobcast listener. It's... Um, it's a... I guess technically it's a cop show. Um, As as I told everybody, I love those British cop shows. But this one's more uh, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the conflict specifically between the Israeli special forces and Hamas. And um, it's fantastic. I go with the English subtitle version of the show. There is an option to use dubbed English audio. and, And it's okay. I tried it, but it didn't feel authentic to me. So great show, short episodes, 35 to 40 minutes each. So it's easy to get through FAUDA, uh, jump on it. Now, um, while I'm on recommendations, I always enjoy Fridays because I go to Spotify on Friday mornings to see all the new music that's been released for the week. Um, but but I got to be honest, I, I haven't loved as much. The, I just don't think there's been as many good releases in the last little while as maybe in the past. Um, but I did over the course of... Uh, the the Christmas and New Year's and, and while in Buffalo for the world juniors, I did stumble on two albums in particular that were released in 2017, but I, I somehow managed to miss their arrival um, on my Friday morning check with Spotify. And the first of those albums was sad clowns and hillbillies by John Mellencamp. Now I, I love Mellencamp and I, I didn't realize that um, he put out new music in 2017 so I listened to that a lot when I was in Buffalo. Um, the other one that I just sort of stumbled on recently was Chris Stapleton's From a Room Volume 2. Now, I guess it came out fairly late in 2017. And while I was I, I was fully aware that um, Stapleton had From a Room Volume 1 came out in 2017, and I really like that. That's the one with Broken Halos and what have you. Um, I didn't realize until really recently that there was a volume two, so I've been all over that of lately. And and if you really want two great musical slices of Americana, right there, that that'd be Mellencamp and uh, and Stapleton. Um, I would also suggest that if you want on the music front, stick around later in the Bobcast. In fact, to end the Bobcast, we've got some great listener feedback. On songs that, uh, if you remember in a previous edition of the Bobcast, I called it songs you're sitting in the car listening to that make you stay in the car until the song is over. And if you remember, for me, that song is Jamie Johnson's In Color. Um, And uh, after I suggested that, I asked for, from the Bobcast listeners, suggestions on the type of song. If they're sitting in the car and it comes on, that whatever plans they had to get out of the car get put on hold until that song is over. So we got some great suggestions from the from the listeners, and uh, we'll play uh, little snippets of a lot of songs that they uh, that they mentioned. As for um, today's bobcast, uh, we've got a little something for fans of all seven Canadian NHL teams, coast to coast on buttered toast, as they like to say. So we will get to uh, something on the Canucks, the Oilers the Flames, the Jets, uh, the Leafs, the Sens, and the Canadians. Um, Not a banner year for uh, Canadian teams, but we can talk more about that in a few minutes. So uh, let's get right to um, uh, wrap up, I guess, of of the World Junior Championship. Uh, Congratulations, of course, for in orders to Team Canada on the gold medal. and, And I really thought that they were full value for the win. I thought the team played really well and. And while you could easily argue that Sweden carried the play in the gold medal game and maybe deserved a better fate, I would say this about Dominic Ducharme's Team Canada. They played the game fast. They played, for the most part, very smart and highly skilled. And I thought they were a very well-organized, well-put-together team. I thought they had a real plan. I thought they executed it relatively well. And I thought they had tremendous attention to detail. And I I thought Dominic Ducharme and his whole staff um, especially, uh, Tim Hunter and, uh, Trevor Lutowski, um, did a fantastic job. Now, as, as good as I thought team Canada was, I thought this edition of the world junior championship 2018 was lacking in a number of areas. And we will absolutely talk about the attendance momentarily. We can't not talk about that, but regardless of attendance in any year, good or bad, um, I've always found the world junior championship saving grace was that the, the quality of hockey was so high that there was so much good hockey, regardless of how many butts were in the seats. And I'm not sure that was quite as true this year as some others. And, and you know what? It's hard to separate sometimes. Maybe the, the lack of atmosphere contributed to that, but I, I can tell you I've been going to world juniors since 86. And I've always found a great hockey game between two really good teams Um can transcend small crowds or lack of atmosphere. And I didn't feel as though we had as many games, that they weren't as plentiful this year as they were other years. And I I did talk to some of the other people associated with the teams um, that have been at multiple World Juniors, and and they had the same sort of feeling that I did, that the overall level of play wasn't quite as high this year as other years. Um, Now, uh, the attendance, it was terrible. And, and I wasn't the least bit surprised about it, to be honest. But it was a huge talking point, and it continues to be. And we, we've we got lots of, of letters about that. And uh, here's, here's a bit of a sampling before we get into the nuts and bolts of it. First one's from Vince. Uh, Bob, my topic is, how do we keep the spirit of junior hockey at the World Juniors? I appreciate all the sponsors who promote and develop the sport, but fear we are losing the spirit of the game to corporations and media. For the World Juniors, I would like to see smaller markets as host Canadian cities or combine two or three markets to remind us that this is still amateur sport. With it shifting to big markets like Toronto, Montreal, even Vancouver, it feels too much like a marketing machine which results in higher prices for tickets, beer, souvenirs, and we lose the essence of junior hockey. would like to hear your perspective of those um, and of other fans listening um and then Vince goes on to say I love hearing updates on cancer patients and hearing on their progress shout out to Mr. Joyce and condolences on your friend Stu who passed away I think all of us love the Gordowney Bobcast and he's a legend I personally have completed my chemotherapy and I am going in for scans I wished I had gone sooner to avoid longer treatment I'm back on the ice playing twice a week and busy coaching kids the rest of the week guys touch yourself and go get your scans thanks for the Bobcast keeping it real Vince Brick the one-not-wonder Habs fan in Arkansas. Yes, I recall when Vince uh, wrote to us last year and um, had a letter on the Bobcast. So there's a little something from Vince on the World Juniors. Um, this one next one comes from Craig Muse. Hey, Bob, love the podcast. I'm a Newfoundlander living in Singapore, but home for Christmas. Watching the World Junior Championship, I couldn't help but notice the low attendance at the games even for the American games. I'm sure this has to do with lack of media coverage of tournament in the States. My question is, why isn't there more coverage of the tournament below the border? The tournament is fantastic, and I think there's plenty of hockey lovers in the States that would really enjoy watching the games. They just don't know about it. Apologies if this has already been addressed at some point on your podcast. Would love your thoughts on this topic. Keep up the good work. That from Craig Mews. Brennan from the Kootenays in B.C., Hi, Bob. If memory serves right, I recall the last World Junior Championship in Buffalo in 2011 having a way better attendance throughout the tournament, even for the low-market team games. What blew me away was most of the semifinal matchup between USA and Sweden. Buffalo could not even fill up the lower bowl. When you were at the World Junior, did you see any insight as to why attendance was the way it was? Thanks, Bob. Brennan from the Kootenays. Okay, then, big picture on attendance. The issues for me in Buffalo were were pretty elementary. Number one, oversaturation. You know, the the tournament was in Buffalo in 2011. And here we are, we're back in the same city seven years later. Now, in the interim, between 2011 and 2018, Toronto and Montreal co-hosted the tournament not once, but twice. So that meant the southern Ontario market, Toronto, the greater Toronto area, the Golden Horseshoe and the Niagara Peninsula in an eight year period between 2011 and 2018. um, The fans in there had relatively easy access to four world junior championships. I mean, when this tournament was held in Buffalo in 2011, it hadn't been in Southern Ontario for almost ever. And so there was an, an an insatiable desire for this product when all those canadians streamed across the border in 2011 to to make buffalo such an attendance success and and let's be honest that's what made buffalo such an attendance success in 2011 was the canadian content so i mean when you look at four world junior championships for the southern ontario market in an eight year period it's it's just too much And at the same time, that same market has been overwhelmed with, I mean, TFC, the Grey Cup, the Argos, the World Cup, the Jays, the Leafs outdoor game, the Leafs, you know, World Junior Hockey should be special to the people that are buying tickets for it. And it got to be ho-hum for the ticket buying population of Southern Ontario. Number two problem, one city hosting the entire event. Um, Not many cities, even those in Canada, can handle the whole World Junior Tournament. Now, if I remember correctly, Ottawa did it. Halifax has done it. But, I mean, it's not coincidence that next year, um, when they go to uh, British Columbia, the whole tournament's not being held by Vancouver. It's being held by Vancouver and Victoria. And I think that's a, a really important distinction. And I think... In two, So next year, it's in Vancouver and Victoria. The year after that, it's in Ostrava in the Czech Republic. And Ostrava is not taking all the games. There's another city in the, the Czech Republic that's, um, I think it's Trinic, that's taking uh, the other group. And when the World Junior comes back to Canada in 2021, the favorite to get it is Edmonton. But every game won't be in Edmonton. They'll They'll do what they did last time. It was in Edmonton, Calgary, and Red Deer if I remember correctly. So I think asking a city like Buffalo that's had two tournaments in eight years and had the Toronto influence in, in 15 and 17, it's asking way, way, way too much to put one group in the Key Bank Centre and one group 100 yards away in the Harbour Centre and then ask the ticket-buying public to, to buy tickets for both of them. So that's the number two problem. Number three is prices. It's an expensive ticket. And organizers, I, I get it. They understandably want to make money. They want to seize on the popularity of this tournament. And then you get into the age old issue of revenue versus number of tickets sold. Which is more important, more tickets sold or more revenue? Um, I mean, if you're running a tournament, would you rather have 18,000 tickets sold at an average of 50 bucks a piece for a revenue of 900,000? Or would you rather say sell 10,000 tickets at an average of a 100 bucks each for a revenue of a million dollars. So an extra 100K and you don't have to work as hard to get it because the easiest tickets sold are your first five to 10,000. It starts to be work after that. And if you know the first five to 10,000 are going to be a lot less price sensitive, then of course you're going to jack the ticket price up. So as I say, the core audience will usually pay a premium for this tournament. So I do believe that pricing has become an issue. And, and I think there has to be some sensitivity to that going forward. But there's also got to be a realization that that USA Hockey or Hockey Canada, if they're given multi-million dollar guarantees by the promoters or the people who are bidding on these in each each of the cities, um, they're not going to turn down those those big money guarantees. I thought the number four factor for attendance in Buffalo was weather. Um, I thought in light of point number one, oversaturation, and point of number two, one city hosting, and in, point of num- in, in light of point of number three, um, the prices, I thought we might get a good walk-up from people in Toronto, Mississauga, Oakville, Burlington, Hamilton, the whole Niagara Peninsula, when maybe they saw how easy it was to get a ticket for a Canadian team game in Buffalo. They might say, oh, what the hell? Let's hop in the car, go down, make a day of it. But it was cold. I mean, it's been a really tough winter uh, so far. It's been bitterly cold. And it there's been a lot of snow. And the road conditions between Southern Ontario and Buffalo during the tournament were not very good. And uh, I think that uh, if you take all those factors, number one, number two, number three, number four, um, boom, boom. No crowd now. I don't. I know there are a lot of people who think, you know what, the uh, the, the they're killing the goose that laid the golden egg. The bloom is off this rose. It's going to be a problem for the World Juniors going forward. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be a lasting problem. And and to that point, I'm told that Vancouver and Victoria ticket sales have been quite brisk. That more than 4,000 packages have already been sold in Victoria. And uh, let's see where is it here. And more than nine thousand packages have been sold for Vancouver. So of the of, of the of the full tournament ticket packages that have been made available, almost seventy percent of them have been sold, and we're still a year out. And that means that more than fifty percent of all the seats, because uh, the the rink in Victoria that the Royals play out of. It's a 7,000-seat facility. So you got 4,000 packages sold in the 7,000-seat facility. And, of course, uh, Rogers uh, in, in Vancouver, 18,000 seat, over 18,000 seats, more than 9,000 packages sold for Vancouver. That means they've already sold more than 50% of every ticket for, um, for every game. So I don't think we need to worry about attendance for next year. As for a couple of specific questions from Vince and Craig in their emails, um, Vince was worried about the spirit of junior hockey being lost because we're always going to big cities in Canada. Uh, I, I could see it going back maybe to Halifax, Saskatoon, um, in time. Um, I think the Double in the next number of months is going to announce all the the uh, the countries, the host countries, for the tournament from 2022 all the way through to 2030. And, um, I think the tournament will probably be in Canada three or four times in the 2020s. Um, and I could definitely see us going back to places like Saskatoon and Halifax and all that's to be determined, but, um, I wouldn't rule out junior hockey cities, uh, getting it again. Uh, although I wonder, you know, like London and Kitchener are two great junior hockey cities. You got a 10,000 seat rink in London, a 7,000 seat rink in Kitchener, um, has the World Junior outgrown that size of building? Um, I don't know. I guess we'll. Uh, I guess maybe we'll find out. And as for Craig, he had a question about why isn't there more coverage of the tournament below the border? I would say not to confuse the lack of asses and seats in Buffalo with lack of American coverage. I think it's really increased. I can remember the 1996 World Junior Tournament in. Um, in uh, Boston and uh, the media coverage back then was virtually non-existent. I've noticed American mainstream media getting much more on board with uh, the world junior championship than they ever have in the past. Now it obviously didn't result in attendance uh, in Buffalo, but I think another factor I didn't mention, uh, we'll call it number five for Buffalo was that as good a hockey market as Buffalo is, and it is a very good hockey market in the, the, uh, The TV ratings for NHL hockey in Buffalo reinforce that on a regular basis. They're not very happy right now. The Sabres are having a terrible season. It's been a tough, tough go for Sabre fans. And and that is certainly a contributing factor to maybe not being on the hockey bandwagon as much as they have been in the past. Um, Let's get to a couple of other World Junior questions here, non-attendance related. I'll zip through these. Uh, first one's from Matt Flindell in Victoria, B.C. Hi, Bob. Love the World Juniors and most things about the tournament and TSN's coverage. The one thing I hate is when the network interviews players after just being cut. These kids are devastated with tears in their eyes, and we don't need to hear them explain what went wrong. I don't know if it is just bringing up memories of all the times I've been cut from sports teams, but I hate it, and I think it makes for bad TV. What are your thoughts? P.S. Always love when you tell old lacrosse stories from matt flindell in victoria bc yeah you know what matt i i generally agree with you um how team canada has cut their players uh the mechanism the just the process um there's a lot of things that go into it uh, how to get the players out of town as quickly as possible how to get them back to their junior teams who in many cases are playing that night um and and they want to get these kids back in the lineup um i would i would say this um i don't I don't like that whole uh, trot the kids out in front of the media. I don't like the as, as being part of it, and I'm there. I don't like standing around a hotel lobby, waiting for one by one, uh, to, the kids to, to 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 walk down a long hallway and have to to face the media. Um, I think when they've made their cuts, as as they're going through it, and understand that everybody does it different, because you know some teams will just announce their team and and they don't really announce the cuts per se. But if you're making cuts as you go, um, you're pretty much obliged to let people know that this player is no longer in the picture for the team. So I would say this, they should just put out a press release that says these players have been released from the team. And if any of the media specifically want to request any one individual player for any reason, because listen, it's a big deal and nobody wants to trot poor, emotionally distraught kids who've just been cut out in front of the media. But, you know, the media covers the tournament. It's a big deal. And um, there may be specific instances where the media feels the need to, where a specific media member covering a specific, like if if you're if you're covering junior hockey in Saskatoon and a Saskatoon blade gets cut from the team, you may want to talk to him about his experience. So if you're there covering the World Junior Tournament and you specifically want a request to speak to that player, that's fine, and I'm sure that player would have no problem doing it at, under those circumstances. But I I don't think there needs to be this general obligation of bringing the kids that are cuts they, they stand in front of it's it's so perfunctory they stand in front of the, the cameras for 30 seconds answer a question or two how disappointed they are and then they leave um, so yeah I, I just put out a list these guys are cut now of course you're talking to a guy who when he coached minor hockey in Whitby and I, I had to go to work I had a tryout and at the end of the tryout I had very little time between getting off the ice from the tryout. And getting to TSN for a, uh, uh, a playoff game back in the day, and uh, so I knew that. And uh, so when I was cutting the kids, I, I instead of uh, instead of uh, going through and doing the, uh, I, I meet with every kid and tell them their release, give them a letter, the things that minor hockey asks you to do. During this tryout, with about 15 or 20 minutes left, I broke the kids into two groups, one at one end of the ice, one at the other end of the ice, did a few drills. Um, the kids at one end of the ice maybe didn't know it at the moment, but they were the ones that were being cut. I watched these kids for a few more minutes to decide if there was anybody from this group that I wanted to uh, to have another look at for the next tryout and decided that I didn't and uh, called them together. And they were at the end of the ice, closest to where the exit of the rink was uh, by the dressing rooms. And I said, hey, guys, listen, um, uh, this is a little unorthodox, but you 12 guys are are all cut. You're released. Um, I I know normally we have one-on-one meetings. We give letters out explaining stuff, but uh, I got to go to work tonight. You guys probably don't need the aggravation of standing in a lineup outside a dressing room waiting to hear whether you made a team or not. Uh, the way minor hockey in some associations prescribe it. So I, I just did a mass cut of 15 guys, and I got in all sorts of trouble from the association for it. But you know what? I think the kids appreciate it. And I told the kids if there was any parent that wanted to talk to me one-on-one specifically, I'd be more than happy to do that. Just here's my number. Give them a call. Give me a call. But uh, getting cut from a team's no fun, and uh, um, I'm not sure we need to trot kids out in front of a camera as, as a matter of uh, – uh, obligation and uh, just put out a press release that'll do it for me but maybe my other media members feel differently uh, next question uh, from Andrew Nolte hey Bob will rock while rocking my three-month-old to sleep at 4 a.m. I figured it would be a good time to email you I've been a big fan of you and all the TSN hockey crew for as long as I can remember the world juniors has always been my favorite two weeks of hockey every year I was lucky enough to be about three rows below you you're set at the O Nine 9 juniors in Ottawa, and I can confirm that you did not react when big things happened after the Jordan-Eberleague goal. Well, I look back and you were just sitting there ice in the veins. Anyways, to my question, I was listening to you on Overdrive yesterday, and you mentioned Coach Dominic Ducharme being in his second year and being more familiar with the process and the emotions of the tournament style and how it could be a benefit this year. Could you ever see Canada going to a full-time world junior coach like a lot of other countries do? I'm a big fan of Ducharme after living in Halifax for seven years and getting to watch him win a, a President's Trophy Memorial Cup. I picked a good time to live in Halifax and then moved back home to Oshawa to watch them win the Memorial Cup. Still waiting on Stanley to come home, hopefully soon. Andrew Nolte, an advanced care paramedic from the York Region EMS. Well, uh, Andrew, congrats on the arrival of the new baby. That's awesome news. Um, Also, thank you for your service. Uh, The guys like yourself, paramedics, EMS, fire, police. make our communities better. So thank you for that. Uh, honestly, I don't see Hockey Canada going to a full-time coach. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily a bad idea. I just think that the deal that they have with the Canadian Hockey League and, and to get Canadian Hockey League coaches experience at this level. Canadian Hockey League, um, it's a business, obviously, but it's also about giving kids the experience they need to get to the next level. And I think that's also true of coaches. And by rotating the coaches... Um, not to say you can't have a guy come back. In fact, that was Dominic Ducharme's third World Junior Tournament. He was an assistant coach in 2016, head coach in 2017, and head coach in 2018. So I, I don't see a day uh, anytime soon when we will have a full time coach. And for multiple people who ask questions, would Hockey Canada ever go to a U.S. national development team program style, program team style program? Um, I don't see that either because of the existence of the CHL Uh, final world junior question comes from Jamie W in Edmonton. Hey Bob, how do play by play guys prep for international tournaments like the world juniors, lots of players that they've never seen before and may not recognize by sight unless they can read the name bar on the jerseys, non-English names, etc. Jamie W from, uh, from Edmonton. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, shout out to uh, Gord Miller and Ray Ferraro as well as Dennis Bayak and uh, Craig button who did our play-by-play and color commentary for the world junior games uh, on TSN uh, Gordon Ray are, for me, it's as good as it gets in terms of a play-by-play and a color tandem. I think they do a fantastic job and, and really it's uh it is memory. Uh, you know, Gord's got a system that he uses to um, go through and memorize the names and numbers. And, uh, it's amazing because they they do multiple games a day um you know, the world juniors oftentimes Gordon Ray are doing two games a day, and Dennis and Dennis Bayak and Craig Button did the same thing and um when when Gordon Ray get to the world the senior world championships in April and May, my goodness, there are days when they do three games in a day and you're right. Um, and those are for a lot of players that you've never seen before. You've never heard before. So uh, shout out to my TSN colleagues um, and all play by play guys uh, for doing such a fantastic job. Okay. Let's change international hockey gears just a little bit here. Uh, move from the world juniors briefly to the Olympics. It was a big week. Hockey Canada on uh, Thursday, January 11th announced uh, the roster for the Canadian Olympic team and on the same day, the Americans finalized their roster. They left open a couple of spots in net. David Leggio and Brandon Maxwell added along with uh, to go with number one goaltender Ryan Zapolsky. So the Americans have their roster set. Canadians have their roster set. And uh, Liam Rooney sends me a question. How come no Canadian Hockey League players or junior players were invited or named to the Canadian Olympic team. Well, I got to tell you, Sean Burke and uh, Willie Desjardins and the uh, Canadian Olympic Brain Trust were in Buffalo for the medal round of the tournament and uh, they watched the team and uh, they just didn't see any uh, CHL players that they thought um, would be prime time enough that they could justify taking them away from their junior teams after the junior teams had already sacrificed them for the World Junior Championship. Um, they didn't want to take a guy like Jordan Cairo and uh, make him a fringe player. Um, and they thought that going the older, more experienced, ex-NHL, ex-AHL um, route with uh, older players that are currently playing mostly in the KHL, but also the Swiss League uh, and some others, was the, uh, was the route to go. And uh, second question on that front from Gordon Duncan was, why didn't Hockey Canada just get Canada's world junior team to play in the Olympics? I'm assuming that would be better than the team we assembled as of now. No offense to the guys going to represent Canada, but I think the young guys would really excel on international ice. Thanks for answering. Um, There's no question that, you know, when you look at the Canadian Olympic team roster, it's mostly players that have played in the National Hockey League or American Hockey League and have given up on that dream, um, not good enough to be NHL regulars, and have gone to uh, play out their careers in in Europe. But I, I wouldn't necessarily convince, uh, confuse that with not being more physically mature and better bets to play the game at a higher competitive level than the world junior kids, who many of whom are going to go on and star, not just play in the National Hockey League, but star in the National Hockey League. And and I think a lot of the teams are are recognizing that, um, that having older players, uh, more established players, even if they don't have the same marquee value or upside that would make them NHL players again, um, that this is the route to go. And uh, But it's going to be an interesting tournament. Obviously, we would prefer to have NHL players at the Olympics, but they're not going to be there. So for me, the whole tournament's an X factor. I, I really don't know how to handicap it. Um, we'll look at all the rosters before they go, but I'm not sure how you would say this team's better than that team. I think chemistry and in a short term, it is going to be huge. And, uh, I think it's going to be fun, a different kind of fun than when the NHLers are there. Um, but intriguing nonetheless. All right, then let's get to some national hockey league questions, uh, and, and also that cross Canada checkup that I uh, promised earlier in the Bobcast. Uh, The first one comes from James Evans in Edmonton. Hi, Bob, quick question. If the Oilers win the draft lottery again, the universe is going to implode, correct? James from Edmonton. Well, James, one of my New Year's resolutions was also to try and answer questions more succinctly on the Bobcast. So to your question of, if the Oilers win the draft lottery again, the universe is going to implode, correct? Yes. Next question, Uh, Zach Belisle, Uh, Hey, Bob, are we now that we're just past the halfway point of the season? What are you more surprised by the Winnipeg Jets being third in the league or the Edmonton Oilers being 28th? That from uh, Zach. Well, Zach, I think that's an easy, uh, easy answer. For me, it's the Oilers being 28th. Uh, This has been an outright disaster of a season for the Edmonton Oilers. I'm not surprised that the Jets are doing well. We'll talk about the Jets in a minute. But uh, I knew coming into this season that the Jets could be a very good team. I thought coming into this season, the Edmonton Oilers would be a very good team. Now, I wasn't as high on them as a lot of people at the beginning of the year. There were a lot of people who, on the basis of the uh, the, the 103 points last year, getting to the second round of the playoffs after such a long drought, that, that they'd arrived as the the contender for the cup and a lot of people picked them to win the cup or be in the cup final or to win the west and i had a funny feeling that getting 100 points wasn't necessarily guaranteed by any stretch for the oilers this year but damn it i thought they'd continue to trend in the right direction even if their point totals were down a little that they would be a playoff team at the very least and a chance to contend um people ask why well i think goaltending tending has been an issue. I don't want to lay it all on Cam Talbot by any stretch, but he's not been as good this year as he was last year. And last year he was Vezina caliber. And Clefbaum and Larson. Clefbaum and Larson were a tremendous pairing last year. They were used in all the key situations, and they excelled. They played at a high level. And, and quite frankly, they've been very poor this year. And I don't know of any team that can take their number one goalie and their top defense pair and uh, go to the opposite end of the spectrum, good to bad, and think that you're going to have a good season. Um, so there, it's more complex than just that. And I'm not saying that it's just Talbot, Clefbaum, and Larson are the problem with the Oilers. They're not getting any offense from the, the, the wings at all. Um, so anyways, that's uh, that's kind of where we're at in, uh, in Edmonton. On the Jets, this is a very good hockey club. And um, the X factor for them coming into the year was goaltending. And we thought Steve Mason was brought in to shore things up. Little did we realize that it would be Connor Hellebuck who would take the step and become the legitimate number one. And between that and the continued maturation of Mark Scheifele, who's currently out with a shoulder separation, uh, the leadership and, and uh, uh, strong two-way play of a Blake Wheeler, as well as the great kids, Patrick Laine, Kyle Connor, um, and others, a defense that's uh, that's really big and strong and mobile. Um, Paul Maurice's team looks like the real deal. Doesn't mean they're guaranteed to win the Cup, but this is this is a Cup contender. And I would be very surprised if um, Jets general manager Kevin Cheveldayoff didn't at least explore the possibility of, of getting better and deeper between now and the trade deadline and maybe sacrificing some of the prospects they have in the cupboard because they have been doing a good job of stockpiling prospects and recognizing that their window is open right now and it's the kind of year where you could really try and take advantage of that. So I'm sure we'll drill down on more specifics on what the Jets are looking for trade-wise as we get uh as we get closer to the deadline. Um we'll probably devote an entire bobcast in the not too distant future to specific uh needs and desires of teams via trade via the trade deadline via trades before the deadline. But uh, anyways, that's my uh, feeling on the Jets and the Oilers. Uh, in Vancouver, a uh, question about the Canucks. This one from... Who's it from? I don't even see a name on this. Hmm. Oh, it's okay. What the hell? Um, somebody who's got a us account. Are the Canucks going to be sellers at the deadline? They have the likes of Good Goodbranson and Vanek, which teams could definitely find value in. Ben Hutton is also on the block. What are the chances any of these players get moved? um yeah given the the injuries to uh to the vancouver canucks the the lack of Besser the lack of Barchi, um sutter although I think sutter's close if not ready to drop back into the lineup um what started as a pretty good season of overachieving for the uh the Canucks the reality is set in, and there's no question guys on expiring contracts like good Branson and Vanek. I would expect to be dealt. Um, Will they talk to these guys about next year? Yeah, I'm sure they'll have that conversation. So I'm I'm sure that uh, the party line is we'll we'll discuss all possibilities. We'll keep all our options open on these guys. But the fact of the matter is I would expect Goodbranson and Vanek to be dealt. But keep in mind, when you're talking rentals like Goodbranson and Vanek, uh, you know, you're getting back a a draft pick um, or a a, a mid-level prospect. Um, doubtful you would get both, um, one or the other, and and so it's it. But it's just part of the process. If if you're not a playoff team, and you've got expiring contracts, um, move them, get get something for them, and and I don't believe there'll be any talk about the Sedin's. They are they're an expiring contract, but they have different status. So as for Hutton. Uh, my friend Ray Ferraro was on the radio the other day talking about that, and I would agree with what he said. You can trade Ben Hutton right now, but if you are, you're selling low. Uh, ben Hutton has played better than he's shown this season. He's played better at times in his NHL career than he's shown this season. Um, and if you move him now, um, I wouldn't expect that the return would be that great. Uh, next question comes from Foti. Or Foti. Um how difficult is it to actually trade away Bobby Ryan or Dion Phaneuf? Or are the Senators really stuck with both of them until the end of their contracts? I should point out that Bobby Ryan, after this year, has four more years with a cap hit of $7.25 million. He turns 31 in March. He um, only did 13 goals in 62 games last year, five goals in 32 games so far this year. Uh, Has a terrible problem with getting his hands and his fingers injured, Um, but obviously paying a guy 7.25 million to score 13 or five and 32, as is the case most recently, um, that's not good. Dion Phaneuf's situation: he's got three more years left at seven, with a cap hit of seven million dollars per year. Um, Dion turns 33. In April. Now, everybody will recall that Dion in the the summer, um, they asked him to to waive his no move clause so he could be exposed in the expansion draft, and he didn't do that, and as a result, uh, Ottawa lost Mark Mathot. And um, I would think that uh, obviously the Senators, as a non-playoff team, and they are a non-playoff team. There's another team like Edmonton whose, whose season has been an outright disaster they get to within one goal of the Stanley Cup final last year and here they are um, basically at the uh, at the at the bottom end of the food chain um, they're trying they're gonna have to try and move some money uh, they want to try to move some some contracts not easy to do um, I don't imagine that the, the Bobby Ryan situation is tradable right now Um as for Dion, that one's a little more interesting. Um, I think there are some time. I think there are some teams that have time for Dion now. Not at the not at full ticket. Uh, three years at, with a seven million dollar cap hit. Uh uh-uh, uh No chance. But Ottawa can take back um, salary, and if they're prepared to do that, they can take up to fifty percent back. I believe there would be teams that would look at Dion Phaneuf and say, Hmm. Three years of Dion. He turns 33 in April. Three years at $3.5 million cap hit if, if Ottawa takes back half the money. Um, so I would think that there are conversations going on between the Ottawa Senators and other teams on Dion enough. Doesn't by any mean guarantee that he'll be traded. Not sure how much the return would be, but uh, as long as Eugene Melnick doesn't mind paying Dion salary for the next three years, half of it, anyways. Um, they might be able to get rid of the other half of it um, because he is still perceived as a top four, top five defenseman, um, especially if you can get the number at a at a manageable, uh, the, the salary number at a manageable level. Okay, uh, next, Montreal. This one comes from uh, somebody who's coded their name, but nevertheless, uh, is there a real value to Thomas Placanitz for a cup contender? The short answer is yes. Um, Thomas Placanis is on an expiring contract. He's going to be a rental. And there's no doubt in my mind, the Montreal Canadiens will do everything they can to move him. He's currently got a $6 million cap hit. um, But uh, closer to the deadline, if Montreal takes back half that cap hit, um, I could definitely see a team looking at Thomas Placanis as a depth option, as somebody who could come in and... uh, play a solid, reliable two-way game. Um, not a lot on the offense, but uh, the ability to take face-offs, kill penalties. And uh, I would expect he would be traded between now and the deadline. And I think there would be a taker for him. But again, like the good Branson situation, like the uh, um, Vanek situation in uh, in Vancouver, or I, I, I probably should have mentioned Patrick Maroon is a rental in, in Edmonton, given the way their season has gone. Um you know, you're you're only going to get back a draft pick and it's probably not going to be a first rounder. That's for sure. Okay, uh, next up from Anthony. Um, Subject matter says, Mike Babcock's inconsistent message. Hey, Bob, I don't want this message to sound like I'm calling for the immediate firing of Mike Babcock. However, as many of us knew going into this season, including Babcock, as he said, in many media availabilities, this year should be treated much differently than last year. And the key difference in the two is expectation. The number of times Babcock says in oppressor, we expect to win every night, is actually quite astounding. My question is, how can you expect to win every night when you are doing two things that are questionable, to say the least? Number one, you're playing Roman Polak every night, even though he continues to not serve his purpose in the lineup. Number two, neglecting to give your most offensively gifted player in Austin Matthews the power play time he deserves. As I'm writing this, I believe he's something around 201st in power play time in the league and the players around that same placement are nowhere near as talented as him. I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. And if you have time, maybe also go into the reason as to why one of the reporters in the Toronto media is not asked these same questions. I feel like if this happened 10 years ago, these questions would have been asked already. Thank you for your time, Anthony from Hamilton. Well, Anthony, I think you make some interesting points. And um, I had kind of had this conversation in in varying degrees um, on Leafs Lunch earlier today with Andy Petrillo. Um, First off, let me get the disclaimer out of the way. Mike Babcock's a great coach. Boom, done, said, you know, we all know that. Uh, Number two, um, I believe Mike Babcock, as much as any coach in the National Hockey League, has a really firm set of ideals or a belief system in terms of how the game of hockey should be played and not only how the game of hockey should be played, but how you win in the National Hockey League. And how you win in the National Hockey League is you go with a four-line balanced approach that you keep the kids uh, hungry and and earning their way and not ever feeling comfortable or complacent. That you rely heavily on on a a group of core veterans for their experience, um, for their leadership. And also, all, all the better if those core veterans embody some of the old school values of the way the game of hockey is played, specifically getting the puck when you don't have it playing without the puck. Hence the, um, the, the love of, of, of Hyman playing with Matthews of Komarov getting as many minutes as he gets, um, Roman Polak, as Anthony mentioned, being in the lineup. And, um, I think, the third point I would make is that Mike Babcock views how you play now as an investment on how you play in the playoffs and that the investment now, the payoff comes in the playoffs. That is to say, it's one thing to win hockey games, loosey Goosey, October, November, and December. It's quite another thing to do that in April, May, and June. And I think, in Mike Babcock's case, everything he's doing now, um, all what he believes, I guess, would be hard lessons for the young players who are getting their ice time limited. Um, uh, Or maybe the, the team playing more of a dump and chase style as opposed to a free flow off the rush style like they did last year when, as Anthony pointed out, Mike Babcock just let him play last year this year, with an expectation that they can win, he wants them to adhere to how they need to win, and um, I think it's going to be interesting times in Toronto. And as I mentioned on Leafs Lunch today, um, you can see the media starting to 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 pick away at these philosophies and these beliefs, you know. And I, and I understand some of that. I watched Travis Dermott play his 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 few games, couple of games so far in the National Hockey League, and I would play Travis Dermott ahead of Roman Polak every day of the week because I think Travis Dermott's going to be a fantastic defenseman for the Toronto Maple Leafs if he's not a pure top four defenseman he's certainly right now in my mind a top six guy but guess what I'm not the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs and Mike Babcock feels very firm in his convictions on his use of Polak and Borgstrom and the allocation of the ice time to Matthews and Marner and Nylander and what I do think you're going to see is you are going to see some bristling along the way. I think you're going to see the media start to challenge him more. I think the media is going to try and make him more uncomfortable and make him uh, publicly uh, defend his his views on, on how the game is played. And, and I think probably as we go along here, um, kids like Matthews Marner and Nylander Uh, Deep down, they're probably bristling. They probably want more minutes. They probably want to pad their numbers. They probably want, when they get into contract situations, to have more minutes played, to have more um, uh, numbers, more offensive numbers, uh, more glowing offensive numbers. But it goes back to the basic premise that Mike Babcock is trying to sell these guys on. If you listen to me and play the game a certain way, we will get rewarded for it. There is a re- reward here. and But I think they're going to, at some point, need to see that, re- get that reaffirmation. And that reaffirmation cannot happen until they get to the playoffs. And as I said on Leafs lunch today, if they lose in the first round this year, the same way they lost in the first round last year, then the, then the players and the media and the fans are not going to get that reaffirmation. And that's going to put even more stress on on Mike Babcock in terms of saying, um, this is the way we're going to play. And this is how I believe we need to play the game. So I think it's fascinating. I really do. And, um, I, I think Mike Babcock wants these young Toronto Maple Leafs to play the game exactly the way the Canadian Olympic team played the game in Sochi. Win one, nothing, win two, one, know how to defend a lead, know how to choke the other teams, choke the life out of the other team. And, um, and 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 not play it the way the kids maybe want to play it and for them to learn to make sacrifices necessary to uh to get where they need to get to. And it'll it'll be uh it'll be a fun ride uh to watch how all that unfolds. Well there goes my uh my New Year's resolution to give short answers to the questions. <laughs> all right, uh, next up, uh Dan Legresley's got a cool question for me. Uh, Dear Bob, I just want to let you know that I really enjoyed listening to your Bobcast. It is really informative and a really good listen when doing boring tasks around the house. I really enjoyed your Tragically Hip episode. In the last 10 years, I really started to listen to the hip. And there's nothing better than sitting on the dock at the cottage, Balsam Lake as well, and listening to Bob Cajun or many of their other great hits. I was wondering if you think the Toronto Maple Leafs have any chance of picking up Drew Doughty via free agency or trade. I know Drew mentioned that the Leafs needed defense earlier in the year when they played. Do you think he would want to come to Toronto to play with the current stars? Thank you again for everything you do and for the Bobcast. Um, my quick reaction on the Drew Doughty, Eric Carlson, Leafs are going to get one of these guys in free agency or trade is I would not expect that to happen. Um, never say never. But in the, specifically in the case of Doughty, I would say this, I, I know what he said earlier in the year, and I know the headlines he created when he talked about free agency, maybe going to free agency and, or, and or what he would get paid uh, to not go to free agency. Um, but I believe that as soon as this season is over, the Los Angeles Kings are going to do what they need to do to re-sign Drew Doughty, And I'll be very surprised if they don't lay an eight year contract worth about 12 million bucks a year on the table for Drew. And then it'll be up to him to decide what he wants to do, but it wouldn't surprise me if he resigns and if he doesn't and uh decides to go to free agency, well then I guess all bets are off but uh that's still a year this July first, and i I guess what I'm saying is I won't be surprised if he resigns in l a but uh uh that eight year twelve million dollar deal by the way would be what I would expect that the kings would come to him with okay uh off to the 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 Canadian uh, content and let's go to the Philadelphia Flyers for a question. This one from Mitchell Whitmer. Hey, Bob, the potential trade of Wayne Simmons has been a hot topic amongst Flyer fans. Entering the final year of his bargain deal, Simmons is due a massive pay raise just as he's entering his 30s. Many fans do not want to see the Flyers give out another deal in which the team is paying a declining player for past production, especially when the Flyers are presumably a few years from really contending. Have you heard or slash believe that the Flyers are looking to trade Wayne Simmons at the deadline or this off season. Okay. I get a lot of Wayne Simmons questions over the course of the year, not just for the Bobcast, but and a lot of Wayne Simmons rumors and a lot of Wayne Simmons talk. And in to Mitchell's point, uh, Wayne has one year left on his contract with a cap hit of $3.975 million. And there are a lot of people, including myself who believe that in many respects, He's almost the engine of the Philadelphia Flyers. That he's a he's a guy with a, a really good drivetrain, and that uh, his energy and the way he plays the game for the Flyers um, is is invaluable to that hockey team. And the fact that he does it for less than four million buck cap hit per year is fantastic. So 14 goals in 42 games um, this year, fantastic uh, for a player that does all those other things as well. Um, I don't doubt for a moment that every team in the national hockey league when they call ron hextall the general manager of the flyers says uh, hey how about simmons i don't believe right now that um ron hextall has intent or desire or a want to part with wayne simmons and i understand the economics and we all understand the economics but you know what if the cap keeps going up at 5 million per year and some of these other uh Financial obligations fall by the wayside for the Philadelphia Flyers. And yeah, you know what? Eventually, they're going to have to pay Ivan Proveroff and some of these young kids. Um, they've got great value on the, uh, the Couturier contract. That's a that's a home run for them right now. Um, but but I, I, I could see where the Flyers would, not at all costs, but at some cost, um, want to try to keep Wayne Simmons in the fold. And depending on what they're offered, I guess, you never say never. But uh, I I try to shut down the Wayne Simmons trade rumors as much as I can because I know how much he means to the Flyers and how little the Flyers want to trade him. I I suppose there's a scenario whereby they could trade him, but uh, I don't believe it's the preferred route. Okay, um, final hockey question of this week's Bobcast. It comes from Carter Cruz, who says, Hey, Bob, love the show. I was curious to get your thoughts on General Manager Jim Rutherford's job security following the recent slide the Penguins have been on. And for that matter, which teams are on the hot seat across the league? Keep up the good work. My goodness, Carter, come on, give Jimmy a break. I realize the Penguins are on very hard times and uh, nothing is guaranteed in terms of making the playoffs this year, never mind repeating uh, as a three-time Stanley Cup champion. But uh, I think Jimmy's job security is just Jim Dandy. Those back-to-back Stanley Cup finals uh, tend to have a way to insulate you as well they should. And let's not be too hard on gentlemen, Jim Rutherford, uh, job security. Um, But I... To that point, and again, this is something we'll talk about on future Bobcasts, I would expect uh, Jim Rutherford is not sitting back with his feet up on the desk admiring his Stanley Cup rings and saying, oh, well, that's the way it goes sometimes if we miss the playoffs this year, so what? We won back-to-back Cups. Uh Uh-uh. I know Jimmy pretty well, and and Jimmy's going to try to find a way, I'm sure, to try and pull a rabbit out of the hat and get this Pittsburgh Penguin team into the playoffs and back into a position... Um, where they have a chance to uh, defend their title and win three cups in a row. Well, that ends the hockey portion of the Bobcast, but not the Bobcast entirely. Uh, If you recall, uh, on a previous Bobcast, I was talking about a song, uh, the kind of song you're driving in the car and you're about to get out of the car and a song comes on the radio and you enjoy the song so much that you either sit in the car until it's over or you go drive around the block a couple of times uh, until the song is over and then get out of the car. Well, that song for me was Jamie Johnson's in color. And, uh, at the time I told everybody about that and played a little bit of Jamie Johnson in color. Um, I asked for submissions on that type of song for you and, uh, and your personal, uh, library, if you would. And I got some great responses. So I'd like to share a few of those with you. So as I said, uh, If it's hockey you crave, see you later. We'll see you in two weeks. Um, But if you want to stick around for uh, some cool music talk, you can do that too. So this one's from Jeff LeClaire. He says, Hi, Bob. Regarding songs that make you stop in your tracks but aren't part of your personal go-to playlists, there is one song for me that always makes me want to laugh and cry at the same time. The song is The Idiot by Stan Rogers, which is the story of a Maritimer who has gone west for work. Every time I stumble upon it, I freeze in place until it passes like a brief but heavy summer downpour. It makes me laugh each time thinking about how different perspective is for everyone in this country. I grew up in Prince Edward Island, but I moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia for school and stayed for work. From my PEI family's perspective, I had moved out west for work when I would return to PEI, which was only a three and a half hour drive for any family event, and I was treated like someone who had traveled home from a dangerous faraway land. The treatment being a mix of excitement to see you and pity for you having to live so far away from your home. My family and I made the move to Toronto four years ago, and we get the we get the original PEI treatment when we returned to Nova Scotia to visit my wife's family. And now on trips to PEI, we are treated as if we are on a weekend pass from prison, which is a mix of excitement, pity and confused suspicion as soon as I say the word Toronto. However, halfway through the song, doubts always bleed into my thinking and I start sadly missing the Maritimes. Toronto has been an amazing experience for our family and if I hadn't moved to Nova Scotia, I never would have met my wife and have the family I have today. Life is very good, but the damn song always makes me question if Stan's Maritimer living away is jokingly calling himself an idiot or it was written as one of those sad reflective moments of what the hell am I doing here that all Maritimers working away from home have so here without further ado is the idiot by stan rogers
1: i often take these night shift walks when the foreman's not around i turn my back on the cooling stacks and make for open ground far out beyond the tank farm fence where the gas flare makes no sound I forget the stink, and I always think back to that eastern town. I remember back six years ago, this western life I chose. And have-
0: so that song you stay in the car for comes courtesy of Jeff LeClaire, who says he's now in the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, via Porter's Lake, Nova Scotia, via Charlottetown, PEI. And uh, I have to be honest, I-, I was not familiar with the song The Idiot. Um, I was not familiar with Stan Rogers, but uh, doing this on the Bobcast forces you to do some research sometimes, and what an interesting story the life of Stan Rogers was, and I say was because he died very tragically in uh, 1983. Now, Stan Rogers was born in 1949, and I guess he was born in Hamilton, Ontario, got into folk music and and such, and had a maritime connection because he had family, and he would visit them in, in the summer. And um, he wrote this song, The Idiot, as uh, Jeff points out, about a a maritimer who's feeling forlorn about going out west uh, to find work. Um, But the most amazing part of the story is that um, how Stan Rogers died on June 2nd, 1983. He was coming back from a folk festival in Texas, and he was on a flight, an Air Canada flight, from Dallas to Montreal. This was Air Canada Flight 797, and um, it was, a, it was a, with a stopover in Toronto, and uh, this McDonnell Douglas DC-9 um, had a, an in-flight fire behind the lavatory, and uh, it filled the plane with toxic smoke. Um, so the plane had to make an emergency landing at the Greater Cincinnati Airport, and uh and it says here, 90 seconds after the plane landed, the doors were open. The heat of the fire and fresh oxygen from the open exit doors created flashover conditions and the plane's interior immediately became engulfed in flames. It killed 23 passengers who had yet to evacuate the airport. And uh, apparently blood tests showed that some of the passengers had inhaled lethal, com- lethal amounts of toxins from the in-flight fire, meaning they were probably dead before the the plane even touched down. So um, quite a tragic story on, uh, on Stan Rogers. Um, But nevertheless, for Jeff and for many Maritimers, uh, the idiot is that song that has a very special meaning for them. Next up, uh, This one comes from John Robertson. Hey, Bob, just wanted to say I really enjoyed the last episode. The World Juniors is my favorite time of the year. I can't wait for the tournament to start. The main reason I'm emailing is because I also really enjoyed the Jamie Johnson extra you put on the end of the show. That song in color has been a favorite of mine for a while. To tie the whole episode together of Warriors and Navy Navy Seals and songs you can't turn off when it's on, I think you will really enjoy this song by Joe Bachman. Called A Soldier's Memoir. It's a song that talks about post traumatic stress disorder that soldiers deal with. Once this song comes on my iPod, it makes me stop whatever I'm doing and I will play it back two or three more times. So here we go Joe Bachman with A Soldier's Memoir. John, that is a pretty powerful song. And, uh, for the Bobcast listeners, I I would suggest to you, um, that little snippet doesn't do justice to the song because, um, Joe Bachman's got a YouTube video that goes with the song and it actually includes interviews with actual U S veterans. Um, and, uh, it it makes it that much more impactful. Um, but this one also has an interesting back channel story. Um, Joe Bachman, I guess, is a a guy that grew up in in the Philadelphia area and uh, moved to Nashville to seek fame and fortune. And I guess he was performing at a concert for uh, U.S. troops in 2011. And it happened to be on the day that Osama bin Laden was killed. And uh, that, Joe Bachman said, was the inspiration for... um, this song about post-traumatic stress disorder um, that, that many veterans um, have to deal with. And uh, he co-wrote this song with Mitch Russell in, uh, in 2013. And I see where joebachman.com used to exist, but no longer does. So I'm not sure what Joe is doing vis-a-vis a music career uh, at this point. But uh, in any case for uh, John R. John Robertson this uh, this song means a lot to him and uh, I can see why next up is Ben from Ottawa who writes hey Bob the song that will keep me in the car until it's done is Holes in the Floor of Heaven by Steve Warner and I hope my granddad is watching for your granddad Ben here's Holes in the Floor of Heaven by Steve Warner
1: One day shy of eight years old When grandma passed away I was a broken hearted little boy Blowing out that birthday cake How I cried when the sky let go With a cold and lonesome ring and Mama smiled, said don't be you today. And the
0: and well, Ben, there's another song that, uh, until now, I was not at all familiar with. And it turns out this was actually a huge hit. In April of 1998, um, Steve Warner released an album called "Burning the Roadhouse Down, and this was the lead single off of that uh, it went all the way to number two on the country charts in both Canada and the United States and the song that was co-written with uh, Warner and Billy Kirsch uh, was the 1998 song of the year in the eyes of the CMA uh, I looked it up online and uh, there's an actually a, a really interesting story in the Nashville Tennessean ab- about this song With um, Holes in the Floor of Heaven is widely considered to be one of the saddest country hits of all time but it also manages to be supremely uplifting and there's actually a pretty good Q&A that follows with Steve Warner and Billy Kirsch talking about writing the song Steve Warner says when we wrote Holes in the Floor of Heaven two days later the gentleman that worked in our office his mother was in town from Florida an elderly lady and I was so excited we'd just written it I said, can I play this new song for you? We were up in our management office, and I pulled out the guitar, and I did Holes in the Floor of Heaven. I was watching her, and she had a couple of tears rolling down her cheeks. And she goes, this is a true story, quote, that's really beautiful. I don't ever want to hear that song again, unquote. And I said to her, that's not the response you want to get, you know, as a songwriter. Most of the submissions we got on this topic were a little more mainstream and not surprisingly, given it's the Bobcast, uh, there had to be some Gore Downey in the Tragically Hip. So Corey wrote in, it's got to be Little Bones by the hip. Reminds me of my university days, getting ready to go out on a Thursday or Friday night. Mm-hmm. chicken slow uh blair mcdonald from hamilton uh, also in the hip pain. uh the song that would keep me in my car would be the live killer whale tank version of new orleans is sinking by the tragically hip sorry if that was hard to read but we just kind of made it into one word 102.1 The Edge in Toronto has the recording of this live version and will occasionally play it. And it's always a joy to me when I hear them play it. It's special to me because it takes an already classic song by the hip and showcases just how special Gord Downey is live on stage. That and I love trying to sing along to the ranting and raving of the Killer Whale Tank story. I worked at
1: an aquarium. An aquarium with lots of money from the government. So it was huge! I, uh, I was a clean and scrub man, we called each other, in the CNS union. I scrubbed the inside of the killer whale tank. And after a while, the boys in the CNS,
0: clean and scrub, we just sort of made it one word.
1: The killer whale tank. The killer whale tank tank. I'm going into the whale tank. I got along with these two big beasts so well. It was like they knew me. They looked at me with their hundred-year-old eyes. And it was like they knew me. Hi. I'd put on my scuba gear, my mask, my regulator. Then I'd fall into the tank. With nary a sound, maybe a... And then I was underwater.
0: Hearing Little Bones in Killer Whale Tank uh, makes me realize uh, how much we miss Gordy. Um, but you know what, that's the great thing about uh, the legacy. We'll, uh, we'll always have Killer Whale Tank and the hip to listen to. Uh, moving on here, uh, Mike Hackstad in Calgary, Alberta says, For me, it's Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Immediately puts me back in high school in 1991, headbanging with Wayne's World. From start to finish, I'm 16 again. There is nothing like it.
1: I see a little silhouette of a man scaramouche, scaramouche. will you do the pandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me Oh mia, 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 let me
0: go. I should point out that Mike also added as a footnote, well I gotta get back to unexpectedly caring about and researching top draft picks. Thanks, Oilers. Ha, ha, ha. Indeed. Uh, Mike, by the way, is from Calgary, Alberta. So uh, there you go. But Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the great sing-along songs of all time. And um, he mentioned Wayne's World, of course, which uh, reinvigorated the song Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, I should point out very quickly that growing up in Scarborough, Ontario, in my teenage years in, in my high school years in the 1970s uh i didn't go see wayne's world i lived wayne's world and of course mike myers is a fellow Scarberian. um he was a sir John A. mcdonald uh up around pharmacy in the northwest corner of scarborough i was more a woburn collegiate uh, uh and Ellesmere McCowan and Bromorton area um but that was uh, That was Scarborough in the 1970s. What you saw in Wayne's world car. Anyways, um, next up, uh, this one from Sullivan song that must be listened to turn the page by Bob Seger or if we were vampires by Jason Isbell, not sure why, but I can't turn off the ignition until these songs are done. I'm a lot more familiar with Seger than Isbell, although I did check, uh, Isbell, uh from Green Hill, Alabama, 400 unit, the drive-by truckers, the whole Muscle Shoals scene. But uh, Turn the Page by Bob Seger, oh my, here we
1: go. This is from 72 also, about being on the road. It's called Turn the Page. of Omaha you can listen to the engine moaning out his one-note song you can think about the woman or the girl you knew the night before but your thoughts will soon be wandering the way they always do When you're riding 16 hours and there's nothing much to do And you don't feel much like riding You just wish the trip was through Mm. See, here I am On the road again There I am Up on the stage. Here I go, playing star again. There I go, turn the page.
0: Oh man, I love that song and, and I love that album. If, if you've never heard Live Bullet by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet well, Band, it is one of the best all-time live world. albums you could possibly get it was released on april 12th 1976 and i kind of knew that because this album's actually got one of those weird hockey connections for me because i went out and bought it on the same day that the toronto maple leafs and the philadelphia flyers were playing a game in what at the time was a memorable and historic playoff series in 1976 seven game series and it was nuts um that was the, the broad street bully era and the uh uh, the Leafs were giving the Flyers all they could handle, but the Flyers were like, they were nuts, man. I mean, they were attacking poor Boreas Alming and uh, assault charges and you name it, it was it was crazy. And I always remember coming home with the album and I had a relatively new, my first real stereo system, you know, components, separate speakers, separate receivers, separate turntable, had these Harman Kardon speakers that were fantastic and, and, uh, so anyways, the game was on, but I wanted to listen to my new album that I bought. And uh, so I watched the game and I listened to Live Bullet. So many great songs. Nutbush, City Limits, Traveling Man, Beautiful Loser. Um, Turn the Page, uh, So Haunting. Metallica does a great version of that, by the way. Um, Rambling, Gambling Man, which of course is the, the quintessential original Bob Seger System um, song. Heavy Music, Do. Get out of Denver. Let it rock. Get it. Go go go. Buy some vinyl, as Baba Bowie would say, and uh, and listen to that one. The uh, the saxophone of Alto Reed. What what's better than a saxophonist with the name Alto Reed? Are you kidding me? Okay, the last uh, music submission and uh, the tail end of the Bobcast here is from our good friend of the show, friend of the Bobcast, Alan Steele, multiple contributor. I talk to him on Twitter all the time. A real mass Proud of it. And his song is, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Love on the wrong side of town. Alan writes, The mix with the Miami horns with Johnny's raspy voice are unbeatable. I've seen the Jukes many times. Never disappoint. The best was in 78, back at Salem State College, the Harvard of the North Shore. So many Harvards that aren't Harvard. I paid $3 for a ticket, best investment of my sophomore college year. So here we go. Love on the wrong side of town, Southside Johnny and the Jukes. Oh, man i love Southside johnny and if i remember correctly i think little stephen aka stephen van also did a version of love on the wrong side of town uh, i've always had a strong connection to south side johnny and the asbury jukes um, because i didn't see them uh, i was scheduled to when i was going to ryerson in uh, journalism school in uh, i want to say it would have been 77 78 thereabouts i had tickets to go and see Southside johnny and the Jukes at the iconic uh, El Macombo uh, in Toronto under the Neon Palms at College in Spadina if I remember correctly um, that's where the Rolling Stones played April Lines got a live album from the El Combo. anyway uh, love Southside Johnny the whole New Jersey sound uh, the Miami horns and uh, was so excited to be going on a cold winter Saturday night to see Southside johnny at the alma combo and things were different back then no social media no internet um you, you got tickets for a show you just went to see the show and i went and found out that it had been canceled postponed um because south johnny had some voice problems and the show got canceled and i didn't know about it but i was standing outside the alma combo and uh, went in and had a drink and uh called it a night but um I've always wanted to go see them since then, and I've never had the opportunity to make that happen. And uh, I I actually tweeted this a while back. And of all people, Southside Johnny himself, Johnny Lyon, responded to my tweet and uh, said, Hey, man, if, uh, if you're ever going to be at a show, let us know. We would love you to introduce us at the beginning of the show. So there's a standing offer that's hard to beat. So it's 2018. I got to start putting a new bucket list together and uh, going to see uh, Southside Johnny and the Jukes. It won't be the same in 2018 as it would have been in 1978. But listen, all things must get done. And uh, I'm going to do that and maybe even get to introduce them. And also on my bucket list in the same vein for 2018 is to get to a Springsteen on Broadway uh, show. Now that it's extended until the summer months, I should be able to work that out. So I I haven't figured out the dates yet, but because I go to New York as often as I do for my weekly NBC gig um, for the NHL on NBC, I'm thinking that I should be able to pull off um, the rare triple, maybe even a quad. I'm gonna have to check out Southside schedule, but I definitely want to see Springsteen on Broadway. If I'm there doing the NBC thing, so there's two of the three things. And if I'm going to be in New York, I might as well uh, talk to my uh, pal, John hit him with the hind from the Howard Stern wrap up show and see if I can get my third consecutive annual appearance on the Howard Stern wrap up show. So, uh, and wouldn't it be something if I could work in Southside Johnny, Wow, maybe they're playing at B.B. King's Blues Club. I could do Southside Johnny at B.B. King's. I could do Springsteen on Broadway. I could do an NHL uh, NBC game. And uh, also the Howard Stern Wrap-Up Show. we got to work on that. Anyways, um, I'm not going to plan that for too early in the year. Um, I, I don't think I'll try to do any of that until March. and There's a very simple reason for that. Because if I'm going to go see Springsteen, and I'm going to go see Southside Johnny, uh, and if I'm going to hit him with the hind, it's going to be with a drink in my belly. And as we all know, no drinking until the end of February. Anyways, that's it for the Bobcast. Thanks for listening. Take care, and good luck with your New Year's resolutions. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.